Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I am Jennifer White, and I am here with my co-host extraordinaire, Ellen Trackman. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Yay. Welcome, Ellen. Oh, wait. Welcome. You're already here. So <laughs> bad. You're stuck with you. <laughs> so, uh, Ellen, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, what do you have any pet peeves and what are they? Um, pet peeve singular. Yes. I do feel like there's a lot of stuff my kids will do. They'll just be like super repetitive. You're, and it's just like, Oh, like if they didn't watch something, like your, my blood wouldn't boil. Um, right. there was one that I feel bad about that. I, um, we, you and I like had this lovely trip to Ireland when we were in our twenties on our mm-hmm. own. And I remember you like would just like naturally say this phrase. And for some reason it drove me so crazy that we like got in a fight <laughs> over it. And it Aww. was, it, do you remember? It was, uh, I remember the fight. I don't remember. That, the phrase was, does that make sense? <laughs> and I probably like, still say it all the time too. <laughs> like, so I went to the store. Does that make sense? I'm like, why wouldn't it make sense? Why am I stupid? <laughs> 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 Anyway, um, it's like I'm a filler. Sorry. Like I've heard people, I, I, somebody unnamed in my life says, so, I'll talk <laughs> so, and I'm like, stop saying so. Oh, and I, I even write it. So, cause it's so and, natural, but it, it's the, <laughs> it's the frequency. It's like the way they do it. Like, I mean, the, mm. using the word so totally makes sense. Right. But in some, uh, there are some situations, especially the more uncomfortable they get, they use it as a filler word. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So yeah, that's all right. I probably and you just did it. it. So I, I, so I, and that's what I say. Sometimes it makes sense, and that's again, sense. also, so does that make sense? Word. Great. Uh, yeah. So does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> things that do make sense are excellent uh, guest today, who has an absolutely fascinating background and also really educational. I, things I did not know about what yes. embryologists do every day. Welcome, Glenn Proctor, to the podcast. Glenn, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. So Glenn is an embryologist, and he's going to tell us um, all about the mystery of what embryologists actually do. Uh, and, but I will say, Glenn, you're not our first embryologist, so not to hurt your feelings, but we did have a professor of embryology before. So you were okay. actually the first practicing human embryologist though. So that, that is a first and very exciting. So uh, um, Glenn, do you want to start by giving a little background about where you're from and um, what inspired you to go into this field? I assume at age five, when people asked you what you wanted to be, you, you said embryology. That's probably one of your first words. Yeah. Um, I'm from South Carolina. I grew up in uh, South Carolina, basically all my life I've been in I'm I'm currently in Colorado and I've been in Colorado for the past uh, 11 years Um, but you know growing up you know I started um, having a love for science just because I'm big into like hunting fishing wildlife that kind of thing and so I I wanted to go to school to be a um, game warden or a wildlife biologist yeah um and then I kind of just fell into the field of embryology. I was, um, back then my family is, uh, involved in, uh, 
uh, funeral homes, um, mm-hmm. mortuaries. And so yeah. I, I did that um, in high school and uh, oh, while I was you, in college. What, what do you mean you did that? What, what were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just help conducting funerals. Uh, oh, wow. You know, actually was digging graves oh, with, a, wow. with, a, wow. uh, with a track hook. Track hoe, you know. We I was about to say, it, like by hand with a shovel. Like, uh, how does no. that? <laughs> no, it's more. It's a little more sophisticated than uh, what you see on TV and the traditional grave digging. So uh, we would just had a big dump truck and a track hoe, and we would go to like mostly church cemeteries in the south. You know, the church cemeteries are huge, and uh, go there and dig a grave and uh, bury the deceased, and then cover the grave and. Um, and then go back to the funeral home and did like visitations at night, um, witnessed some embalming, um, that kind of thing. And so I did that. You, you witnessed it or you participated? Helped participate a little bit. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's some real biology in there, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. No, we, we also work with some local law enforcement. Sometimes we had some cases where we would exhume. Um, people if something came up and so it was was definitely interesting um i did not uh, know any of this about you glenn this is this explains so much (laughs) (laughs) and so you know and you know i thought about maybe doing a career in that as well but you know there's a lot of weekend work and i was like i don't want to work on weekends (laughs) <laughs> Which, so uh, that's why you're an embryologist because you didn't want to work on weekends okay for everyone considering their future career <laughs> that is yeah the but that's not the truth uh, embryology is a lot of weekend work so but anyway i you know i went to college you know graduated with a biology degree and was just trying to see what was out there um you know i had interviewed for um a crime scene investigator and a game warden. Oh, um, wow. And then some state funding got cut. So they cut back on their hiring. And so I was like, well, I got to figure something out. And then I just saw a, a ad um, for working in a, at a genetics lab. So I worked at a Greenwood um, genetic center in South Carolina doing karyotyping and fish, which is a type of uh, um, genetic testing. So I did that for a little bit. And while I was there, I met a guy who was an embryologist. He was a lab director. Uh, his name is Bill Boone uh, in, in South Carolina. And so um, I didn't even really know what IVF was or, you know, assisted reproductive or art. You know, back then they call us art specialist. Um, and so I uh, kind of he recruited me and, I, and I've been doing it ever since. And so I worked in Greenville, South Carolina for uh, probably about seven years. And then I went to Charlotte, North Carolina for a couple of years. And then during that time, I also kind of, you know, there's different types of situations with embryologists. You know, there's, um, you know, the Greenville job was a hosp- uh, hospital system. So it was, you know, a lot of politics. Um, and then I went to Charlotte, which was a private clinic that owned by a corporation. Um, I kind of only like those kind of like, um situations so I, I went back to school and got my mha i was wondering if you had to go back or what kind of education was required do you do you mind telling if someone wanted to be an embryologist what kind of education is, is necessary so the cool thing about um embryology and still is true today is i mean you have to have a bachelor's degree um 
but you can work your way up, but you know, with just a bachelor's degree, but a lot of people, they're slowly starting to get, become more uh, programs that offer master programs in embryology. And then you also can get a PhD in uh, reproductive physiology um, or embryology. Um, there's a couple of uh, schools that have that um, distinct dis- discipline. So um, it's, a, it's one of those unique fields where it's kind of a unique skill set. Um, you can have you know, you can you need to know the knowledge behind the science of embryology and the media preparation and all that kind of stuff. But there's also like a lot of hand-eye coordination, you know, that you have to have. And some people have the knowledge, but they can't just do the lab work or vice versa. And so it's kind of like a kind of like a double-edged sword. You know, you kind of are, are very specialized. And then, um, you know, so you're kind of the nice thing about being an embryologist is we're always sought after. You know, so job security is pretty mm-hmm. good. But the, the other side of that, too, is we're so specialized that getting out of embryology would be a little difficult. Um, <laughs> you're you're lot, stuck in it now, huh? Yeah, a lot of stuff we do doesn't really translate to other healthcare fields. I mean, probably now with like all the COVID stuff, you know, um, some of the lab, the wet work, you know, bench work, laboratory skills would come in um, useful for like some research programs or, um, you know, um, some hospital labs, but, you know, embryology is one of those really specialized things, and it, it's a good job. I mean, it, it, and for people who are maybe thinking about coming in embryology, I mean, you know, the uh, compensation is good. Um, you know, it, it's just a good, that always it's, helps. It's a, it's a good job, you know, and, but the only thing, you know, the thing is too, is, you know, IVF centers, centers are pretty spread out. So like, you know, there's only a handful usually in most states, like bigger states like California, New York, those kind of places have a lot of centers. But, you know, most other states only have a handful of centers. So and then there's non-competes involved and all that kind of stuff. So usually if you want to change a job, you have to move states. Oh, so it's uh, so yeah. it's good to kind of like find a good spot and just kind of settle, settle in. So that's what kind of happened with me. Uh, you know, I was in Charlotte. You know, went back. I went and got my master's in uh, health administration because I thought I was going to be a hospital administrator. Kind of changed some oh. things that I saw during my time. Good. See system. something, fix it. I, I like yeah, it. I wanted to be a solution to the issues I saw, and but along the way, I got recruited to go to Fort Worth, Texas, to uh, build a lab from the ground up. And so I was like, man, that's a unique opportunity. So I kind of took that, and so. I was involved with the construction companies and we we built a state-of-the-art lab. And so I was there in Texas for about a year. And while I was there, um, Dr. Mark Bush, who is the medical director uh, at Conceptions, where I'm currently at, um, I didn't even know who he was, but he was calling me, trying to recruit me. (laughs) Who is this guy that keeps calling me? What's going on? (laughs) And I also had a friend that worked here, too. And so... Uh, she was kind of like, hey, you should come here. And I was like, um, you know, nothing against Texas, but it's like Texas, Colorado, you know, sign me up for Colorado. Because, <laughs> so, um, I, I, you know, Colorado is just an awesome place to be. So uh, I moved here and I've been here ever since. And so I kind of, you know, um, during my time here, I came over, kind of took over the lab, changed some things around, uh, you know, we totally re- uh renovated the lab with um you know the the best technology that's available 
and that kind of thing. And then so I've been here and I'm currently uh, I'm a partner here at Conceptions now. And so I'm kind of lost in here. For, <laughs> and for I think the technology point's really important. Can you talk a bit about how much of a difference that can make and what I mean in the the best layman terms you can, like what you guys use versus what other clinics might be be using in terms of technology? Yeah, and so that's the um the thing about IVF labs, you know, it's a it's a huge investment because the equipment's not cheap. And um and so there's really no there's no really trade secrets in IVF. I mean, most everything that we have you can buy commercially through uh, IVF vendors. Um, and so when you build an IVF lab, it's kind of basically choosing what menu of equipment that you want to have. And then, you, you know, there, there can be a competing lab that has totally different equipment, but, you know, the same, you know, the end goal is the same. It's try to, you have to, you have to get the equipment that works best in your environment and your setup um, to produce the best rates, you know, yeah. What worked for us may not work for someone else. Mm. Uh, is if on, you're a patient, is there like a good question or a way to ask out of clinics to help you understand if the clinic's like keeping update technology or if maybe they're a little behind? How would you be able to ask that? Uh, the technology part would be a little tough, but you know, basically it amounts to um, you know outcomes. Um, that are published, you know, there's, um, you know, there's some, there's some ways you can find out how good a clinic is, but you also have to take in consideration demographics of the area. Um, there's a lot of things that go into obvious statistics. So obvious statistics can be a little misleading. Um, you can, um, you know, go to any clinic's website. They usually have their rates posted. Um, but it's all about how they post their rates, you know, which, what, patient population are they reporting or how do they report their rates? You know, is it, is it biochemical? Is it a heartbeat or is it live birth? And so the way you can go, the the best way you can go to see that information is the CDC. We're required to report every um, IVF uh, cycle to the CDC. And so the CDC has, you go to their website, they have all the, um, every clinic's, um, data submitted there. And some clinics report to SART, but SART mm. ultimately reports to the CDC. Oh. Um, so SART's kind of like the middleman uh, data gathering, but the CDC is kind of um, where all that SART data ends up. So you can go directly to this uh, CDC uh, website. There's actually a uh, link you can click there and uh, you can look at any clinic's um, rates in the in the country. You can even break it down by specifics of what you what interests you like by age and diagnosis and those kind of things and on our website we can throw that link in so for listeners who are looking for it we can try to um, make it easier for them when people are looking at those statistics do you have any advice of like what numbers to focus on or the best way to read them because i feel like they might be confusing to people who aren't familiar with them yeah, I mean, we've kind of like, I think things are getting a little better, but in the last, you know, five to eight years, it's been a little confusing because of the um, introduction of genetic testing and the prevalence of genetic testing in our field. And so there's some clinics that don't do a lot of genetic testing. And so they just are transferring embryos based on morphology. And then um, 
There's and clinics. Morphology like, uh, for those who don't know, it's like what it looks like. <laughs> shape. Yeah, morphology is how the embryo looks. Um, so we grow embryos to the day five stage. Uh, there's some clinics that will grow to day three. So on day three, the embryo should be between six to eight cells. And on day five, the embryo is about 120 to 130 cells. And there's two parts that we're looking for. There's one part called the inner cell mass or ICM, and that is what becomes the baby. And then there's a part called the trophectoderm or trophoblast, which becomes the placenta. So we're looking at cell number in each one of those um, structures. And based on the cell number and how that structure looks, we grade that embryo on a morphology scale. So like an A, a quality, B, C, and so forth. So, you know, we always strive for A, uh, B is still really good. C is not so good. And so that's kind of what morphology is with uh, mm-hmm. embryos. It's like going to school, right? You get your grades. Yeah. 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 It's almost like a beauty pageant. You know, <laughs> I don't know. You know, there are some embryos that look better than the other words. Others, that doesn't mean that they have a better genetic makeup. It just means that they kind of look textbook, you know. And so we kind of, there's a scale as far as, um, you know, it's all about basically cell number um, and and structure. Um, but that's, shape. that's like you, like eyeing the, em- like looking at it and being like, okay, I give you an A or a B. Is that like your decision? Pretty much. It's very subjective. Oh. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we. A lot, most we're required, you know, most IBF clinics are CAP accredited or College of American Pathologists. Uh, so we have an inspection every two years and they basically, and they'll send us material during the year and we have to like grade uh, embryos based on morphology and it's compared yeah. to uh, everyone else in the country to make sure. And how, we're how'd you do? Oh. Yeah, we do. We do good. Yeah. And so it's, uh, you kind of just kind of keeps everybody, um, you know, you know, just making sure everybody uses the same yeah, standards. Yeah, are these, sure are these tests public? I feel like we should post that too. <laughs> uh, those are not public. Oh, uh, I will say I've been to a conference where they posted a picture, like they a bunch of different pictures of embryos and like, which one looks like the good one to you? Yeah. And I'm pretty sure all of us who don't study this got it wrong. We're like, that one looks nice. I don't know. <laughs> so for, for listeners that, you know, are potential patients and stuff, I mean, it, you know, when your previous questions was asked how you choose a lab, it's one is to make sure they're CAP accredited because then it's a very stringent um, inspection that happens every two years. And so just make sure they're CAP accredited and most labs are. Um, but that's, that's one thing I would definitely look look at. Yeah. So I'm curious what your day-to-day looks like. Do you, are you kind of like locked away in the laboratory where they, they don't let you interact <laughs> with humans or patients? <laughs> Um, no, we're, you know, we are a little different, I think, from a lot of clinics, you know, unfortunately, um, there's clinics that have does don't have enough embryologists. Um, they, you know, they, the ASRM are American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is kind of like our governing body, they kind of like have some guidelines of how many embryologists you need per um, caseload. And it's about uh, one embryologist per 150 cycles. And so <clears throat> we're lucky. We have a, a pretty big team here. Um, and so we're not really, we have a, also, we pride ourselves in trying to you know, um, have a lot of patient interaction. Some There are some clinics that embryologists don't get to talk to the patients. Yeah, uh, but, interesting. But 
we talk to the patients a lot. And so the day to day, you know, we always, um, and we, there's some, there's some clinics that batch cycle. So they'll, they'll like stem everyone at every, every patient at once. And then there's clinics that are just open year round. And so we're one of those that just open all the time. So we're constantly at any given day, we have embryos or patients in a lab that are at different stages. And so the typical day is we get here usually about seven o'clock in the morning. Um, in the first hour, typically it's doing quality control of the lab. And so these, you know, all of our incubators or um, all of our equipment has com- basically computers built into them that tells us, make sure that the gas levels are right, the temperature is right, all that kind of stuff. And so the first hour of our day is doing tests against those computers, if you will, to make sure they're saying what they're supposed to say. So it's uh, the first hour's quality control, just making sure everything's in check. That seems huge because there's been yeah. those big cases. Especially of, with know. some of these big things, yeah. Yeah, yeah where they've so the, lost whole tanks and 4,000 embryos or eggs at a time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the media that the embryos are growing in have to be a certain pH, so we do pH testing every day, uh, make sure that incubators are maintaining that ph and so it's about the first hour of the day and then the next kind of task is assessing embryos so we have embryos we do FERT checks for the patients that were retrieved yesterday and then we have some embryos at about the day three stage we look at those embryos and then we look at the day five and day six embryos because those are the ones that we're going to free either freeze or biopsy and freeze and so we assess embryos that takes about an hour and then typically about 8.30 or so, we start our retrievals uh, based on how many, ever many uh, patients that we have coming through. Um, and to, just so I understand the different roles, do you, do you do retrievals or is the physician doing retrievals? How does that um, work? The, so the re- retrieval process is um, the doctor is, uh, our physician is actually retrieving the eggs. Um, surgically with uh, a needle, basically. And then that uh, are flushing out the follicles from the ovaries. All that follicular fluid is then collected and passed to us in a lab. And we, we're searching through that fluid for the eggs. Um, and then we, after that retrieval, we, uh, come, we're the embryologists are the one that goes talks to the patients. We let them know how many eggs we have and how many of those eggs are mature and how many of those are healthy enough for egg seed. So you um, get to give the good news or the bad news. The good or the bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do you do you have special techniques for uh, good news versus bad news? I mean, good news seems easy, like great news, but if it's bad news, how do you yeah. how do you approach that? Um, we just kind of you know the best way is just to be very honest, um, not sugarcoat anything. You know, we and usually it's the patients who um, have the bad news. They're kind of like prepped for that a little bit. You know, it's kind of patients who might have some severe diminished ovarian reserve or they just want to try with their own eggs before they pursue donor egg. You know, it's usually those patients that every now and then there's some bad news. But usually, you know, it only takes one. So a lot of those patients, you know, it's like, you know, we get one or two eggs and, you know, we hope for the best. And so usually we're pretty successful. So that's the morning is retrievals. Um, Usually while... There's a lot of things going on in the lab. It's kind of like a well-oiled machine. And so while someone's doing retrievals, um, there's another embryologist that it, 
that are thawing embryos for frozen embryo transfers that day. Um, those start about noon times, but we thaw those embryos in the morning. So we give them time to re-expand and kind of like come back to life. I mean, they're already alive, but kind of like, you know, they, they re-expand they just start their, you know, continue their um, life cycle and start, you it's know, just, dividing. It's just dividing them. It's not putting them, like, on, like, electrocuting them and, like, laughing like a mad scientist. No. Like, ah hi, <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of like that. Uh, we They're frozen in liquid nitrogen, liquid nitrogen, so those embryos are kind of in a glass state. And so we're just rapidly following those embryos, and they just kick, kick right back on. So, uh, um and then we just put them in an incubator for about three or four hours before we do the transfer to make sure that they're uh, continuing their growth and healthy enough for transfer. Um, and while that's happening, while the retrieval is happening and the thawing is happening, someone is usually biopsying day five or day six embryos. So those are the embryos that have made it to the blastocyst stage and have good morphology. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do genetic testing um, on that embryo. Um, we over 99% of our patients here uh, do genetic testing. We're big, uh, you know, advocates for uh, PGTA or pre-implanta- pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidies. And so when we do that, we're basically making sure that air, all, those embryos have all the chromosomes that are fit for life. So they have all their chromosomal pairs. Um, and so that when we do the transfer, uh, that we know that, that embryo morphologically is a really good looking embryo, plus it has the proper number of chromosomes that are fit for life. Yeah. Um, and then when we do that, we can tell you if that embryo is normal or abnormal. And if it's abnormal, we can tell you what's wrong with it down to the chromosome. What would happen with that embryo? Yeah. Could yeah. it be a live birth? And if it is, what is the outcome of that live birth? And we also can tell you if it's a boy or girl. Do you want to know mm. that information? Um, that's always a good one. I so I feel <clears throat> like some clinics used to refuse to give that information, or just that was their policy not to give it. What your it sounds like your clinic is is fine and does give that information out. Yeah, we do. We we just have, you know, we have a philosophy that if I mean we have this we have this information and you've kind of paid for this information, so you should be you know, have access to it. So we do let patients choose, um, you know, which embryo they want to transfer. Um, mm-hmm. And so gender is sometimes involved in that as well. You know, some clinics don't do um, gender testing. And I've asked a couple of clinics that don't do, don't allow the patients to know the gender why they do that. And a lot of it is because they want to be able to choose the embryo they want to transfer not based on gender. Mm-hmm. Um, so we typically, we will like have patients who, that have better quality um, embryos of one gender compared to the gender that they are seeking. And we'll let them know that, hey, you know, we can transfer this embryo. It should it should be a pregnancy mm-hmm. because we biopsied it. If we biopsy an embryo, it's good quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some embryos that are just better than the others. And so we'll tell you that, hey, we can... For example, we can transfer this girl, but you have some boys that are way better. We'll document that knowing that, you know, you're kind of choosing away from your best quality embryo based on gender, but usually works out anyway. And Um, I'm curious, do you see people when they are choosing that they choose more 
boys or girls. I, I assume boys because, you know, women were still second class citizens. <laughs> no, hopefully not. No. Yeah, I think I think most of the time, probably 80% of the time, it's just family balancing. Because hmm. um, they've had, you know, two or three boys and they want a girl or vice versa. Yeah. So I think it's like, you know, boys and girls, basically 50-50. Um, you know, you see the, you know, it's seen more times than not when we um, call the patients each, but you know, I, I would, I would think that it's a lot of times it's the woman who wants a little girl and it's the guy that wants a little boy, you know? Um, but you know, most patients are just happy. They just want to get pregnant. Yeah. And so when we call and, one of our jobs as embryologists here is we're, we're the ones that call the patients with the genetic results. And so the embryologists we call and we will go over their genetic results with them. And then we'll, we're, we always make a recommendation of which embryo we want to transfer from the embryology standpoint. And we're basing mm-hmm. that on genetic fitness and morphology. And so our goal is to get you pregnant now. We don't want you and- to do multiple mm-hmm. transfers. Is there, is it equal between the genders? Like, is it, do you see that like male embryos tend to rate better or look better on your scale or is it absolutely equal regardless of gender? It's, it's absolutely equal. That's great. Regardless. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we, we try to just, we, you know, and with genetic testing too, there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of clinics that don't do genetic testing or there's some clinics out there that think that using, doing genetic testing is um, a little overload like unnecessary but we would argue that we think it's absolutely necessary just because we do have patients you know they there's an argument out there a lot of times that meetings we go to that patients in their mid-30s are good candidates for genetic testing um and then some people argue that the you know the lady who's 42 that only has one embryo that you probably shouldn't genetic test that because that's her only embryo anyway should transfer it or the other argument is, you know, patients that are less than 30, they're young. You don't really need to do genetic testing. Or with donor eggs, you don't need to do don- genetic testing. But we would argue you need to do genetic testing on everyone. Um, because that 42-year-old, you know, if she only has one embryo, we, we would still genetic, genetically test that embryo because it comes up back um, abnormal. Then we're not transferring an embryo that's given that patient false hope. Uh, we know that it's chromosomally abnormal. And plus you know, we give her a discount or her money back for that transfer cycle. Um, so she actually, she knows now that it is not going to work. Plus she gets some financial uh, is, money back. Aside from the cost of testing, is there any downside? Do, is there, does it show that there's any damage to the embryos, for example? Oh, uh, we don't see that. Um, you know, we, I think, I don't know, you know, to be, boastful but we have a we have a good we have a good crew of uh skilled embryologists and so we don't see any damage for the embryos and then our uh, pregnancy rates are really high mm-hmm. um and then you know and then for that younger that you know the 28 year old or the donor egg you know we still see a 40 percent annually rate or abnormal rate with those younger patients and our donor eggs and so you know the it's cheaper to do genetic testing for us. And our, our, our philosophy is it, it's cheaper to do genetic testing than not do genetic testing. And for example, if you have eight embryos, we routinely have patients who are young that may have 
eight embryos make it to the day five stage, which is outstanding. And then when we get those genetic results back, only one of, out of eight is normal. Oh, and so wow. what's the chance that we would ever have transferred that normal that embryo? We'd, yeah. And so, and then, the, then you risk patient dropout because what if she's had three transfers with no pregnancy, she may just give up. Right. When there was only that or, one to get to. Yeah. By doing genetic testing, you kind of flip the script. So you kind of like transfer the only ones that have baby potential mm-hmm. and you never touch the ones that don't. So you, uh, you know, the goal is to get you pregnant now and save you money because basically every transfer, regardless of what the initial IVF cost is, every uh, sequential uh, transfer is about $5,000. Yeah. And so we want to get you pregnant now. So you, you know, you don't, you're not out of pocket financially or emotionally uh, going forward and you have, you start to build your family, but if you don't do genetic testing, don't get pregnant on your first one. Uh, you have to do another one. You don't get pregnant on that one. That's 5,000. Don't get yeah. pregnant. The next one's 5,000. So you may be another, you know, twenty twenty five thousand dollars in before you ever get right. a lot. Especially with something that was a test that you could have done for less than that amount of money. Yeah. Right now, you know, for our, our testing, we charge, you know, it's about 15, it's about $1,500 to do genetic testing. So it's, um, you know, in the big scheme of things, you know, why not? You know, I like just... that term baby potential. <laughs> baby baby yeah. potential. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so yeah, it's, um, you know, we, we just think that genetic testing, we do a lot of it. So we, I, we definitely, I'm a big advocate of it. I'm, I mean, I'll just, I like to spill my life out here. This is a podcast, right? This is what I do. Tell my whole world out loud. We went through infertility and I was, Young, I was under th- I was under thirty the entire time we were trying. We tried for seven years with no success. Never made it to IVF, um, and my daughter actually was is born with a chromosomal abnormality. And so I would have been one of those likely that probably every single one of those embryos would have been come back with that that same issue, and you know the the testing issue. So we would have seen and probably would have saved us a lot of heartache had we been there and done that. So I, I'm a huge proponent. I'm like, yes, do it. It'll save you a lot of heartache and a lot of time Yeah, well, to, to that, be prepared like, to know what the issue was. Exactly. Helper, exactly. So. And I will say, I always like to caveat. She is great. Her abnormality, her break where it is, is very small. You guys would have seen it and you would have been like, yeah, you probably have a really good chance with this one anyway. So yeah, yeah. she's fantastic. And then, you know, we, before we started doing a lot of genetic testing, you know, like I said earlier, it's kind of like the beauty pageant, whatever Imperial looked the best went in. And so what we found is a lot of times our AA quality embryos are in fact, the ones that are genetically abnormal. And so um, we've done a lot of studies seeing if um, genetic testing or morphology correlates with genetic competency and it doesn't. And so, you know, you think more, you know, the, the, the thing about morphology is, you know, it has all of the structures to be and looks healthy from a cell standpoint. The embryo is healthy, but nice. then the genetics is what brings it to life, human life, basically. Yeah. So you wow. got to have, uh, and we have patients all the time. We have, we have one I worked on this morning, actually. She, um, she's had, this is her third cycle with us. Um, and she makes a lot of blasts and beautiful embryos in her first cycle. There was no normals. In the second cycle, she had one normal out of five. So she's kind of banking embryos because she wants two kids. So she's going through another IVF cycle now. 
uh, we just biopsy today. And so hopefully we get another, you know, one or two um, normal embryos so we can kind of fulfill her family dreams. But morphology, they were looking perfect, but it was the, the testing showing that there was yeah. issues. It's like, yeah. yeah. Complex abnormalities. So, so those embryos are just not fit for life. So they would just never implant, or if they did implant, miscarry. Yeah. So finishing up on like what your day looks like. So you you do the testing, then you go home at two p.m. for a nap, or what's the rest? Of it? <laughs> so that morning, you know, like it's, we're doing we're doing embryothals, retrievals, and biopsies at the same time. So when you do a biopsy, you also <clears throat> you have to biopsy. When we did the biopsy, we're basically using a laser and we're cutting three or four cells off of the one hundred twenty cell structure. So all those, theoretically, all mm-hmm. those cells came from the same stem cell line. So whatever those, you know, cluster of cells that we removed, theoretically came from the same stem cell line. So that tells us what the baby is. <clears throat> and so, yeah. so we're doing that. And then once that biopsy is completed, they have to be uh, frozen. So then we have another embryologist, usually freezing embryos. Um, and then about noontime, we do transfers. So we start transfers about 1130 to about two o'clock. And so that's where we are. The patient comes into the office um, and then we put the, um, the embryo into their uterus. And so yeah. that's kind of a, one of the cool procedures that we do. And a lot of patient interaction. We bring them back. We, we take a picture of their embryo for them. So it's kind, of, it's kind of like their first baby portrait. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> and so we go over that. The husband or the other partner is here um, during that procedure we load the embryo into a catheter. Um, they can actually, we have a big TV screen, so they actually see the embryo go into the catheter. So they're kind of involved in that whole process. So they, they can see the embryo loaded. And then when we go into the tra- uh, to the transfer room, the mm-hmm. doctor uh, will insert the uh, transfer catheter into the uterus and they can see all of that happening on the ultrasound screen. And then we do a three, two, one countdown inject. Oh. And sometimes you take a little flash of light and then that yeah. patient's two weeks pregnant. Until proven otherwise. So Until proven otherwise. It's nice. kind of a cool procedure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's like, that's one of the cool uh, parts of the day. Um, yeah. And then uh, starting about 1 o'clock, we start doing the ICSI, or intercellular sperm injection, on the eggs that we retrieved that morning. So we're putting the sperm inside the egg, and so we do that. Um, and then, you know, there's usually biopsies going on during the day, freezing embryos during the day. And typically on an average day, we're out of here about um, between three and four o'clock every day. That's nice. So, that's but you know, start too. early. So yeah. I was going to say, that's mm-hmm. not- <laughs> start early. hiking and hunting and do all those other yeah. things. And so we work, um, you know, we work seven days a week, but we have, you know, oh, wow. we, have a, we, we have a good team. So we're on you know, rotation. Got it. So someone's always on. Someone's always here. There's always at least two people here every day. Um, And then the nice thing, if you have to work the weekend, the following week, we get two days off during the week. So it's kind of nice. Yeah. If you work the weekend, that following week, you can take Thursday and Friday, and then you have Saturday, Sunday. So you have a four-day weekend. It's a good reward for working the weekend, I guess. Um, So, yeah, we – we have currently six embryologists. We just hired a seventh. She starts oh. on August 18th. We're excited nice. about that. Wow. And uh, uh, we're growing. We got a new doc coming. Um, Congrats. September 1st. Yay. Yeah. 
And can I ask, how has the lab dealt with COVID? I mean, everything is changing, right? Do you guys stand six feet apart? How do you, how have you had to adjust? Um, With us, when COVID first came out, you know, we still, you know, there was a state mandate, you know, an ASRM basically had guidelines that we should stop um, procedures. Um, So we did, we followed state and ASRM guidelines. Uh, we did continue working a couple weeks past those guidelines because we did have patients in the lab at different stages. So we completed those cycles out. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't do any transfers. And it was probably a couple weeks, um, probably two or three weeks, we didn't do anything. Um, so we split into teams. And uh, so only, you know, we split into two teams. So that team's together all the time. So they're not cross-contaminating anyone else. You're like, so, in school, they call it like cohorts where you're like, yeah, a, yeah. yeah, you have like a we, cohort. We, yeah, we have two cohorts. And typically we usually shut down in July for lab maintenance for about a week. So we just, you know, took advantage of that time and did that maintenance at that point. And then um, there was some arguments and conversations across the country and uh, webinar our Zoom meetings about that, you know, because at first, you know, the state and uh, ASRM kind of basically said that IVF was non-essential. Uh, but then the argument was, wait a minute, it is essential because we have women who are, you know, 40 years old and time is, you know, very precious. You know, there's a lot of difference between like a 38-year-old and a 40-year-old. Um, and so we started started back up doing patients who, um, you know, were on a time crunch or had some kind of, um, you know, even exit cycles because, you know, those patients, you know, the whole point of freezing eggs a lot of time is preserving fertility. So, you know, if you have a woman who's 28, she knows she wants to have kids, found the right partner or what have you, you know, she's different at 30. So, you know, so the argument well, went on as far and as I don't like, know how, with, how often you deal with cancer patients, but I know sometimes someone's diagnosed with a condition and they have to go through a retrieval before going yeah. after like Time chemo or something. Yeah. Yeah. We do a lot of, um, um, kind of like fast paced stems for cancer patients. Cause you're mm-hmm. right. They, you know, they get diagnosed and they want to do a procedure pretty soon. So we have to, you know, we don't have a week. Oh, like, wow. Kind of like push these patients through. And so, so that, so that conversation started happening, you know, it's like, wait a minute, you know, IVF, you know, we just, you know, a couple of years ago deemed IVF as a, our infertility as a disease, but now you're saying you can't treat this disease. Um, yeah. so we, uh, so we started back up, we started back up about, uh, mid-May. Um, we, we were crazy busy in June cause we had a backlog of patients, um, and so I think we're still seeing a little bit of that backlog. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, everyone's doing well. And uh, as far as COVID, you know, with the teams, you know, we, we do everything we can. We, you know, we sterilize things. Everything's already sterile in the IVF lab because it's basically almost like a clean room. So we, right. we're I mean, that's using, probably an advantage. You're already like, you know, yeah, we're already, everything's so clean and wearing protective gear. Well, yeah, maybe. we already wear protective gear on a day-to-day anyway. So mm-hmm. we're already doing things. Um, we, um, you know, we take our temperatures every morning when we come in. Um, if you're not feeling well, stay home. 
yeah. you know, the, the general CDC recommendations. We kind of decided as a team too that we we're gonna we weren't gonna travel for a while to keep the team safe. Yeah. Um. And so I mean, we just you know we stay in Colorado and go camping, some stuff like that. We mm-hmm. just um my team are my team loves to travel so like internationally and oh, stuff all the time yeah and uh, it's so hard hard we kind of decided to like you know you know keep the team safe so we can keep you know conceptions going and treat our patients yeah. um and we, we screen our patients too we've only had two patients that had to cancel their cycle because they tested positive um wow. you know so most patients i feel like most patients that are going through IVF are kind of like doing the, their own version of stay at home orders and, and stuff because they don't want to cancel their cycle, you know, because right. usually during their, you know, they have a lot of money invested in drug as, as well. And so, you know, if you have to cancel because you get COVID, you know, that's a lot of money lost. And so right. patients are doing a good job, I would say, uh, taking, you know, personal responsibility of, of keeping themselves safe for sure. Yeah. So, um, this was all really enlightening and really helpful. Do you have any crazy stories you want to share with us as an embryologist? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we have some interesting patients that come through, um, you know, some very emotional time, um, you know, and, you know, they, they want the dream of having children, so they'll do whatever it takes. And so I had one interesting story when I was in Texas, um, I was the only embryologist at a lab in Texas. I worked a lot and I was, I basically worked almost every day for about a year. And, um, uh, we got a call about two o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, I woke up from a sleep. I thought that, you know, at first I thought it was one of the lab alarms because everything yeah. in the lab is also alarm. So we get calls during the night. We're always on call. Um, so I thought it was that, but I picked up and it was, the physician I work for and say, Hey, we have this patient that, um, she was supposed to be retrieved in the morning. So basically in about six hours or so, but her husband had just passed away uh, from a tragic, um, accident. And so they were like, but she was a pretty powerful woman. I think she got the magistrate involved there in Texas and all that kind of stuff. And they wanted me to, since, it's kind of funny. I mean, not the story's not funny at all. I mean, it's a good outcome, but it's kind of, you know, he knew of my, you know, mortuary background. (laughs) And so he wanted me to go to the morgue and see if I can extract some sperm from this guy. And so this patient, she, it was a, it was a sad situation because I think she was a little bit still in shock, but she was still like focused on having a, a child with, her husband and so Mm -hmm. uh, what they ruled is you know this is comes to you know you know with you guys you know consents and stuff is huge and this is one of those situations where the consent was huge um and what the judge basically ruled in the middle of the night was that um this guy wished to procreate so he had signed an IVF consent it was signed perfectly every line initial you know t crossed i dotted so he said proceed and wow. so um, I got up probably a couple hours later and went to the morgue. Um, and then uh, I was able to um, 
get some testicular tissue from this guy. He was still, you know, we were kind of worried that we were going to have any viable sperm because basically, you know, he was, had been in a kind of a frozen or not. a He wasn't frozen, but he was in a, a, a cool environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were able to get some, I took some testicular tissue, brought it back to the lab, um, searched through it for a couple of hours. And I was able to find a little cluster of uh, testicular tissue that had mo- live modal sperm in it. Oh. And so Yay. we pr- proceeded with a um, retrieval and got eggs and got them fertilized and she had a child. Wow. And then uh, we were also able to freeze that sperm too. Yeah. So I don't know what's happened since I've left, but you know, it's just one of those stories where like, you know, having technology and like IVF, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, situations where you can be successful where, you know, without IVF, having a kid is not possible. So, um, do you get to hear the success or the, like the end of the story much? Like, do you hear from your patients after they, they have their children? Yeah. I'm, I wear a lot of hats here. And so I'm also Mm -hmm. a marketing director. So, um, so my marketing team, you know, they reach out, we, we stay in touch with our patients a lot. We get pictures all the time, letters. Um, we try to go, uh, you know, you know, they're very willing to give their testimony, you know, testimonial about their experience and all that kind of stuff. And so we try to, um, get that and share that with other patients to kind of like, you know, um, try to keep the hope alive for patients who are kind of struggling uh, we also had, we had a really cool um, story, um, kind of along the same lines I just destru- described. We had a patient who, um, her husband was in the military and passed away um, while on duty, and um, they had luckily made embryos before he was deployed, and so um, she was also successful. Um, transferring those embryos and so she has given given her testimonial and so she's a big advocate for other military families as far as like IVF is something you should consider Yay. Um, as a military as, family I thank her yes <laughs> yeah just because you know, you know there's a lot of unknown and so um it's just a good way so we we'd like to we do a lot of special things for military families for sure just to you know because Sometimes their financial needs are diminished sometimes. And, um, you know, they're put in situations that are out of their control. So we try to help them as much as we can. That's great. Um, Before we wrap up, is there any one thing you wish you could tell people out there, one kind of myth you could dispel that you come across and you just wish they they knew this one thing? Is there anything like that you'd want to want to say or get out there? Um. I would say, um, if you, if you something, if you, if, if you're going to pursue IVF, I would say do your homework for sure. Um, you know, call, make some phone calls, talk to the clinics, see what they do, you know, what their bread and butter is as far as procedure wise, go look at the rates, um, you know, go to, you know, go to a clinic that fits you, um, individually, you know, cause, you know, I think one thing that's important is, you know, the lab performance and also just being, 
you know, how well you're treated. Um, yeah. And then because it's such yeah. an, a personal a journey, uh, you know, you have a, a financial component wrapped up in this as well. Um, and a very, you know, more so an emotional journey. So I, I would say just Definitely. do your research and go to find a clinic um, that you have, you know, there's good communication. Um, I would say talking to the lab is important because um, you'd be surprised that we have patients that come from other clinics that when they come to us, they, it's like we never had even got any of this lab information the whole time. And so oh, wow. we, we try to like be very transparent. I think that's important to find a clinic that's very transparent. Uh, you know, hopefully <clears throat> most of the time the outcome is successful. Um, but if it's not successful or, you know, it's good to have an open communication to kind of like prep you and then get some education of what really is going on and what's happening. Um, and so I just think just open communication is important for sure. Yeah, that sounds key. Um, so we'll get to let everyone know that they find the best embryologists, make sure they're, you know, they have a good Southern accent. They're super smart and laid back. <laughs> key elements. Um, well, we really appreciate you joining us and for all that you do to help create families and for sharing your, your time and, and all this knowledge with us today. Anytime, anytime for sure. Thanks so much to Glenn Proctor for joining us. We had been really wanting an embryologist on for a long time and little did we know when, when Glenn agreed to come on that he also had this amazing, fascinating backstory of working in the funeral business and I know, right? <laughs> able to share all of this great information. So we really appreciate it. Yay. Oh, thank you, Glenn. And thank you to all of you who have been leaving us reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate it. And obviously we would appreciate it if even more people left more reviews uh, or gave us phone calls at 303-997-1903. And as always, as always, a huge thank you to those on our team that make us look and sound great, to Amanda, to Tyler, and to Chris at Worker Bird Studios. And of course, to all of you who listen. So thank you all so much. We'll talk to you next week. 